Uh, if you got your Bibles now, open to 1 Kings chapter 15. 1 Kings chapter 15, and we're going to start in verse 5. As you're flipping that direction, I'm going to give you a little disclaimer. This is a very, very practical message. Very, very practical. And if you are a staffer in this room, this one is for you. I'm going to teach you some gold today. I'm going to teach you some, uh, some gold uh, leadership principles if you'll receive it, okay? This is a lesson on specifically when someone in your office has set you up to fail, all right? It's the story of Uriah the Hittite, and it is a good one. Some of you are staffers, some of you are military personnel. Um, this is one that you need to know. When you have a boss that's gone crazy, uh, this is a great passage to navigate. Now, just for the record, we're going to get into David's crazy when you're the one who's the crazy one causing other people problems next week. But this week, we're going to navigate Uriah the Hittite and the way he deals with David. I found a crazy little verse, uh, and that verse is 1 Kings chapter 15, verse 5. Look with me, if you will, 1 Kings 15, 5. I had read this verse before, but when you take it out of the context of Abijah, the king of Judah, the passage it's written in, and you just read it, it's like David's tombstone and so human. You ready? Watch this verse, 1 Kings 15, 5. It says, for David had done what was right in the eyes of the Lord and had not failed to keep any of the Lord's commands all the days of his life, except in the case of Uriah the Hittite. Now stop right there for just a minute. Uriah the Hittite is the case that we are studying right now where this was a man where David slept with this man's wife while he was off at war, invites him to come back, tries to set him up to fail, and then tries to cover up the mess when it doesn't work. Then he has Uriah killed, and then he tries to cover that up, and he marries Uriah's wife. I mean, I'm telling you, this is a rough situation that you go through. And for David, 1 Kings 15, 5, for the bulk of David's life, he's the man after God's own heart. He's done all this good stuff, these amazing things that we should look up to. He slayed the giant. He built the nation of Israel. He navigated the difficulty with King Saul like a master, and yet... He still had his except for Uriah the Hittite moments. That is all of us, every single one of us in this room. Even the finest are sunk without Jesus. Can I say that one more time? Even the finest of us are sunk without Jesus. It lets you know that even on your best of days, we still have our except for Uriah the Hittite moments. So what we're going to do today, if you're taking notes, you can write this down. You ready? Nobody is above becoming unreasonable from time to time. Handle it with godliness. Say it again. Nobody is above becoming unreasonable from time to time. Handle it with godliness. Like I told you, next week we're going to talk about you being unreasonable and how we can navigate that. This week we're going to talk about what happens when someone over you, a boss, someone in the community, a leader, a coworker, um, somebody in your sphere of influence work-wise when they become unreasonable and you are working in subordination to them. Now, if you got your Bibles now, flip over to 2 Samuel chapter 11, and we're going to address this question today. How do you deal with a person in authority that is trying to set you up? How do you deal with a person in authority that is trying to set you up? Now flip open 2 Samuel chapter 11, and let's start in verse 6. 
The lead-in for this is what we studied last week, and that was, again, uh, David is supposed to be off at war. He has sent the men off with a guy named Joab, who is uh, leading the troops at this point, usually David's right-hand man. Now David, uh, when he should be off at war, has sent Joab in his stead. Uh, While he's off, uh, David doesn't have anything to do, idle hands at the devil's playground, and so all of a sudden, David, one night, gets up off his bed when he should be sleeping, but he's got too many energy units left over. He begins to walk around on the roof of his palace, And he looks down and he sees a woman ceremonially washing. It's a beautiful woman that he has known for some time. Uriah the Hittite's wife, she'd been with him since the crags uh, when David uh, David was still on the run from Saul. Uh, Uriah and his family had been with him. He looks down. He sees her ceremonially washing. And remember, that means she's just had her period. And so the window for her to get pregnant is very, very small at this point. And he decides to roll the dice. Sends for her. She comes to him. And then all of a sudden, they sleep together. And then he gets word not too long after that she is pregnant. So all of a sudden in that moment, David, instead of fessing up to it and trying to figure out what to do, he comes up with a plan in his mind that we're about to read about, which is, let's get Uriah back here. And then if Uriah comes back, then he can sleep with her and he'll think that it's his child and not mine. So now look at what happens. We get the story of Uriah the Hittite starting in verse six. It says, so David sent this word to Joab. Send me Uriah the Hittite. So Joab sent him to David. Now watch this. This is crazy. When Uriah came to him, David, look at this, asked him how Joab was and how the soldiers were and how the war was going. Now stop right there for just a minute. Uriah is listed as a mighty man, meaning that he was a part of David's crew, but he was not a part of the inner circle of four that's regularly listed. In fact, the only time he's really isolated is in this particular passage. So here's the deal. You got to picture Uriah as a low-level soldier coming in and being like, you wanted to see me, sir, all right? And then he goes, uh, just wanted to know how Joab was doing. Now, do you remember what it just said? That David reached out to Joab in order to get Uriah the Hittite to show up. The picture that you have here in your work setting is when someone you is in a position where you start to sense that something in that situation is a little bit off. He comes in and I'm telling you from the very beginning, Uriah is sitting there going, why am I the one that's been brought to the king's house? Why in the world? In fact, the soldiers in Israel would have taken an oath to do whatever it was until the job was done before they came back home to be with their families. So all of a sudden he's there. And in his mind, I'm sure in the beginning of it, he's like, is this a test in one way or another? There's got to be something more than what has been asked of here. You want to know how Joab is and you want to know how the men are doing? Uh, David, we haven't even had very many conversations before. Uh, Okay, I'll tell you how it's going. Now look at what happens next. Verse 8. It says, then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. Wink, wink, wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace and a gift from the king was sent after him. Underline a gift from the king was sent after him. The other thing that you get here is that he was encouraged to be with his wife through this gift that had been given to him. David's trying to set this up, but for Uriah, it doesn't make any sense. Now look at verse nine. This is the integrity of the person who is being oppressed by the person in authority over them. Verse nine, it says, but Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace. Underline and highlight, but 
that Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with all his master's servants, and he did not go down to his house. Now stop right there for just a minute. At the entrance to his palace is a very, very powerful word for any of you having to navigate someone who is unreasonable in authority. He doesn't just stay. He stays in a place that is very, very visible. And this is not to try to expose David. In this circumstance, Uriah knows if I go back home, I've taken a vow that I will not be with my family. I will not eat food. I will not clean up until the work is done. So he stays and he stays in a place that is out in the open and visible. If you're taking notes, write this down. How do you deal with the person authority is trying to set you up? Number one, operate with unquestionable integrity. Operate with unquestionable integrity. Now, just for the record, we should always try to operate with integrity. But if you know that someone in leadership or authority is trying to harm you or you have a suspicion that they're trying to get at you, Uriah sets the table for us here. He doesn't just go home and not sleep with his wife. He sleeps at the foot of the palace in a place where there are a whole bunch of witnesses to notice that he is trying to do this in a godly manner. Not to be showy, but it is visible. Know the difference between the two. Don't try to live with showy integrity, but it should be visible in the way you walk with God, in the way you live your life, and in the way that you deal with others. Operate with unquestionable integrity. If you don't take anything else away from today, I hope you take this statement. Are you ready? God greatly honors our sacrifice of uncomfortable, awkward obedience. Let me say that again. God greatly honors our sacrifice of uncomfortable, awkward obedience. Uriah coming into town, not going to see his family, and sleeping in the entryway of the palace was uncomfortable and awkward, but it was in obedience to the vow he had made to Almighty God. I want to encourage you When we get into a situation where we feel pressed because of bad decisions from those who are over us, when they start to do things that are really rocking the boat, we have to remember our place and we have to remember our play. If Uriah stands up and points the bony finger in David and says, you're wrong, you're making weird decisions, you're acting funny, can I tell you what the king can do at that point? He can just have him death. He can just have him banished. He just have him thrown out. He still has to abide by chain of command. And that means uncomfortable, awkward obedience for a time. And if he can stay walking that path, then he'll be able to stick around. Now listen, I'm going to teach you a secret today. Did you know that in any corporate setting, in any government setting, the system is set up so that there is an opportunity for the person who causes the problems and who makes the poor decisions to not actually lose their job when they're the one that's to blame. Shocker, right? Can I tell you how that works? There's a totem pole. And here's the deal. I'm not talking about chain of command. I'm talking about who's on the chopping block in their job situation if somebody has to go. And so here's the deal. It's not fair. It's just the way it goes. Somebody messes up up here and gets bumped down the pole, all they have to do is make sure that there is one person beneath them, and then they can keep their job at the end of the day. It's sad, but it's the way it works. And so guess what they have to do? If the person is making decisions that are bad for the company, bad for the government, bad for the organization, 
and they find themselves falling down the totem pole. Guess what they got to do? They got to find somebody to be lower than them to pass the buck to. Don't be that person. The way you avoid that, I'm teaching you power if you're listening, is you find a way to operate in integrity, in integrity, even when it's awkward and laying on the palace floor to do so. Operate with unquestionable integrity, and it keeps the spotlight on the weirdness of the administrator. Is that a good word? Some of you need to hear that. It keeps the spotlight on the weirdness of the administrator. That's a whole lot easier to say, and it's pretty hard to walk. Can I tell you why? Because it drives us mad when people do stuff that they should be punished for, and we end up having to live with that mess. Tell you the short version of a story. Some of you have heard me tell the long one before. I worked at a church job, and it was very evident, I mean, from the first week I was on the job, that I needed to leave this job. It was not for me. Very corporate in nature. Um, Ministry can't operate that way. Uh, It was very corporate in nature. Had a horrible experience. Um, I did not enjoy the situation. And again, it was just very clear that I needed to go. But listen, I'm not a quitter. And so for a year, I started August 1st, and I would end up quitting on August 1st, a year later. For a year, I tried to fight it out every single day. You tie into that. Autumn was pregnant with Lulu, and that year later, Lulu was four months old, and it had some breathing troubles. And so I'm supervisors. It was a tough situation. I was being pushed to do things that I did not feel like for me were ethical. I stood my ground, but I just felt like it was a fight every day. And then finally, it came to a head. The very last mission trip we did to D.C., we brought a group of 75 students, high school students up here. We're scouring the city, and this is before the time of good GPS units on your phone. And so we had told some of our drivers, hey, make sure you bring a Garmin GPS unit, okay, that you can mount on the dashboard. This was years ago. That you can mount on the dashboard for the safety and get you to your mission projects correctly. Well, I had three leaders that didn't do that. One of them was a hospital administrator at the time, uh, and they did not do that. They thought they could just use their phones. And I mean, it just was, streets here in D.C. are gloriously confusing. Back then, before iPhone could really do stuff like that, I mean, it it was tough. All that to say, while we're here, I took out a PO in accordance with the financial policy and bought three GPS units with budget money that I had. And then I had multiple interns at that point. And the goal was to let them use those for home visits after, uh, the, after the deal had played out. Well, anyway, there were other stuff going on where they were trying to get me on things and just felt like they were trying to set me up. I get back from the trip and on my desk is a little half sheet of white paper that says... Salary to be docked because church credit card was used for a personal expense in the amount of three GPS units. I went to the financial office and I said, what is this? And they said, yep, we consider GPS as a luxury item and you have to pay for those. I said, it doesn't say that. It says church credit card used for personal expense. I said, if you're going to do this, I said, first of all, I completely disagree. But second of all, you write that it's for the GPS units. They refused to do that. So I called my dad and I was like, what do I do? And he goes, son, you quit. He goes, you should have quit six months ago. He goes, you quit. I said, but you didn't raise a quitter. (laughs) He said, I know. He goes, but you're going to need to quit. And he goes, and then it's going to get real hairy. You know, one of the reasons why I love my dad so much, this instance, he walked me through like a master chessman to show me what was about to take place. It was completely unreasonable. I go in. 
I turned in my resignation and said I wanted to quit. You'd have thought you could just quit. But the problem is it's a black eye for the organization. If somebody who's just been there a year just up and quits, nobody leaves our organization. Nobody would leave this job. Nobody would not want to work for this person. And so guess what? When I turn it in, all of a sudden the machine begins to stir. Dad says, they're going to shove an NDA in your face. I said, a church? He said, yeah, churches do that too, sadly. He said, they're going to shove an NDA in your face. He said, don't stink and sign it no matter what you do. I said, what are they going to offer? He said, they'll probably offer you health benefits, some money. He said, you got a four-month-old child, and they're going to try to leverage that. He said, whatever they do, don't sign it. So I go into the meeting. And when I do, sure enough, that NDA slides across the table. They make financial concessions and say, if you'll sign this, you can never tell your story. You sign this, but we'll give you X amount in exchange. And I remember I said no, and then one of the men in the room made the statement, you're a bad father to your daughter and a bad husband to your wife. Just sign it and take the medical benefits. At that point, I was filled with the Holy Spirit and I said, I'd be a bad father to my daughter and a bad husband to my wife if I did. And then I went to the car and I wept. I wept. I felt like I had betrayed them. Even though I knew it was the right thing in the moment, I just felt like I'd betrayed them. I called Autumn on the cell phone and I said, am I a bad father? Am I a bad husband? She said, you would be if you'd assigned it. You know, I didn't give away the right to tell my story. And it was a really hard year. It was sleeping in the entryway of the palace for a full year. Do you know why? Because the way it went down, they did not make me do my final two weeks. But by cutting me off and sending me away, anytime they would go, where's Zach? What happened to him? The response was, I can't say. I can't say. And they'd go, did he do something bad? can't say. Was he fired? I can't say. Even though they knew the truth. Can I tell you what happened? I slept in entryways for a year. There wasn't a day we went without health benefits. The Lord provided for us in a miraculous way. And not only that, guess what happens when you live by integrity and you take your hits for a year? The truth always comes out. I became a legend. (laughs) Nobody walks away and lives to tell the tale. All of a sudden, random people call me out of the woodwork and they go, you did this. You walked away. And then a lot of conversations happened this way. They would go, you really didn't do anything. You really weren't fired. And I said, I've been telling you that for a year. But integrity? Integrity is making the decision. I'm going to do what's right. And if it means I got to sleep in the entryway so that the other people in the palace can see I never left. I never left. Uriah doesn't even know what David's done with his wife. He just knows something's off, and he ups his integrity. Can I tell you how that's different from how most of us work? Most of us, when you start getting pressed and someone in authority over you starts acting crazy, most of you at that point turn into a caged animal, and you go, oh, that justifies all the sin I've been wanting to do, right? Ooh, they're going to treat me like this. I'm going to treat them that way right back, right? This for that. But what are they trying to do? They're trying to bump you down. And listen to me. Chain of command means that if there's a tie, then you lose. Hadn't you figured that out yet? If it's a tie, you lose. That's all they want. They want a tie so they can knock you down just a smidge below them. And then all of a sudden they get to stay and they were the ones that caused the mess. So what do you do? Sleep in the entryway. 
allow people to see it. Don't be showy about it, but don't hide it either. Sleep in the entryway and allow the Lord to defend you. It begs the question, does adversity ramp up your integrity or do you let it justify your sin? Does adversity ramp up your integrity or do you let it justify your sin? If that's you, you're going to lose your job. If that's you, you're going to lose because you're just a smidge below that other person. Now look at 2 Samuel 11. Let's read verses 10 and 11. Man, your eyes so cool. Look at this. This is crazy. Verse 10. He doesn't go out. He sleeps in the entryway of the palace. It says, when David was told this, look at this. Uriah did not go home. He asked him, haven't you just come from a distance? Why didn't you go home? You got to read the desperation in David's voice here. He set up this cover up. He sent the gift to let Uriah know what he was sending him to do. And Uriah doesn't even go so that rumors can swirl that this wasn't his child. And so I'm telling you, he's sitting there and he's like, what are you doing, man? I brought you in. I gave you this gift. I'm the king. You're the worker. Why don't you just receive it? Look at what happens next. I love this next line. It says, it says verse 11, Uriah said to David, now stop there for just a minute. Read the titles in this statement. The low-level soldier who's not in the inner circle says to the king, to the commander-in-chief, to the one making the decisions, the power of Uriah's statement here has to be read in his position and David's position. Look at what it says. Then Uriah said to David, the ark of Israel and Judah are staying in the tents and my master Joab and my Lord's men are camped in the open fields. How could I go to my house and eat and drink and lie with my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. Now stop right there for just a minute. Think about the memorable nature of as surely as you live. What he says to David that's so memorable and powerful is Uriah the Hittite looks at him and says, I want to go eat good food. I want to go sleep with my wife. I want to go and wash up from the war. But David, as surely as you live, we took an oath to almighty God. I took an oath to you as a king so that we would not do these things until the work is done. If you're taking notes, how do you deal with the person authority that's trying to set you up? Number one, operate with unquestionable integrity. And number two, speak memorable words worth repeating. Now, I want to focus on those last two words. Speak memorable words worth repeating. Because all of you in this room, to be in this city, you are very, very smart people. And so guess what that means? That means you know how to do a zinger as good as anybody in the United States. You're brilliant people. And you speak memorable words. They're just not necessarily the ones you want repeated. So guess what? When that boss messes with you, the goal is if they're at the bottom of the totem pole, they want you even with them because as the person who's their subordinate, you are technically just a little bit lower by nature anyway. So guess what? Talk to people that are safe and don't speak those words that are zinger after zinger that they can write down in your report to get you later on. Can I tell you who we like to talk to about our work issues? People at work. <laughs> Do you know why? Because they understand. But listen to me. That coworker who depth chart is even with you is not the person to speak memorable words about your employer, about who's the head of your department. Do you know why? Because there is an unwritten depth chart where if they take that information and share it, with the person in authority, and they always do. 
then they get to be just a tick above you on the unspoken, unwritten depth chart. Now listen to me. Speak memorable words. I'm teaching you power if you listen. Speak memorable words. but Make sure they are words that are worth repeating. You say, does that mean I just sit on the anger that I have for my employer? No, but have somebody outside of the organization that you can talk to. You say, but I got to go through the whole spiel. And if you find some really close friends, you won't have to go through every intricate detail that led to this point because you'll see in that friendship. I want to encourage you. If you take your notes, write this down. You ready? Don't cloud your integrity by spewing hateful words. Let me say that again. Don't cloud your integrity by spewing hateful words. Man, you want to know who was great at this? There's a guy named Jesus. Ever heard of him? All right, Jesus was great at this. Where David is still imperfect and flawed man, Jesus does this with perfection. Flip over to John chapter 8. John chapter 8, and we're going to start in verse 2. This is the story of the woman caught in the act of adultery. You want to talk about a situation where Jesus was set up to fail and he found a way to navigate it specifically with the memorable words he would speak? Man, this is, a, this is not just a master's level class. This is an eternity level PhD course that Jesus does in that. Look at what happens. John chapter 8, starting in verse 2. It says, at dawn, Jesus appeared again in the temple courts where all the people were gathered around him and he sat down teaching them. Now, then all of a sudden, the teachers of the law and Pharisees brought a woman caught in the act of adultery and made her stand before the group. Now, stop right there for just a minute. This is not just any group. This would be like in the middle of a sermon. He's preaching to the group. He's teaching them. And imagine someone walking in with a naked woman, throwing her down in front and saying this woman was caught in the act of adultery. Now, I don't know uh, how it works in ancient times, but I got a feeling it's like now it took two to tango on the act of adultery. So here's the deal. What they have just done here is they've let the man off the hook and they've thrown this woman in the middle of this group like a piece of meat to humiliate Jesus and to humiliate this woman at the same time. I mean, I'm telling you, if there was ever a moment when Jesus wanted to call fire and brimstone down from heaven on a group, it would have been this moment right here. Setting him up to fail. He knows what's in the heart of man at this point as well. I mean, he had to be so absolutely furious. So look at what it says. Teacher, they said to Jesus, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded to us, she, uh, he commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? They were using this to question him as a trap in order to have basis for accusing him. Watch this. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, if anyone is without sin, let him be first to throw the first stone at her. And then again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Now, over the years, there have been all sorts of talk about what Jesus was writing on the ground. Was he writing out scriptures? Was he writing out the names of the people who were involved in this situation? My dad's is the one that I always felt like was a good interpretation. He said, I picture Jesus just kneeling down and doodling in the sand because he was trying to keep himself from absolutely unleashing the fury of heaven on those jokers. <laughs> now listen, he doodles and it says they press him. Now just for the record, at that point... They probably think they're winning because they can see they're getting at him. Instead, he formulates his words and says, let he who's without sin cast the first stone. And then what does it say? He immediately goes back to doodling in the sand again. In that moment, the son of God with the fury of heaven 
did not speak words, sinful words, worth remembering. Instead, he brought them the integrity-filled truth. And watch what they do with that in the next verse. It says, verse 8, again, he stooped down, wrote on the ground. At this, underline the highlight, at this. Those who heard began to go away one at a time. This is a slow walk away. The older ones first. I always love that line. The older ones first. Until only Jesus was left with the woman standing there. Word again. Jesus straightened up. There's that word again. And asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. But watch this. Go now. And leave your life of sin. Can I tell you what Jesus does here? Jesus deals with sin in this passage. In the beginning, she's a piece of meat on the ground, but she still has committed adultery. So instead of Jesus going, their sin was worse than yours, go ahead and get out of here. In the beauty of the way that only the Son of God could have done, he deals with the wickedness of the Pharisees. He disperses them. And then in a beautiful individual one-on-one conversation, he goes to her and says, your persecutors are gone. No one pushes against you now. And then he says, but leave your life of sin. Go and sin no more. The beautiful majesty of Almighty God in this moment to deal with the wickedness of the group but also to deal with the sin of the woman providing a path to repentance and reconciliation. Masterful. Masterful. Do you see the difference in that and throwing a zinger at your boss? Look at the difference between the two. One is life-giving and worth repeating into eternity and the other, the other is one that many just hope goes by the wayside. It begs the question, are you giving your persecutors free ammo? Are you giving your persecutors free ammo? For some of you, it's as simple as finding a new friend to talk to that's not in the lunchroom at work. Can I tell you, I didn't say this in the first service, I'm just going to tell you. One of the things that my dad told me to do when I was going through my tough time is he said, stop going to lunch with your coworkers. I said, what do you mean? I go, they ask me, it's rude. He goes, come up with plans and have something to do every day. Because you know what they wanted? They wanted the dirt. They wanted the info. And then some of you are in this circumstance. You're not at odds with your boss, but one of your coworkers is. Don't go to lunch with that person. They're going to give you information that you have to do something with. And so guess what? Schedule lunch with somebody else. Schedule busyness. In fact, this is D.C. Work through lunch. Nobody's going to say anything about that. It's what you do anyway, right? Just work through lunch. Man, I got to keep my nose to the ground right here. I got to stay with it. You do that, then guess what? You actually prevent your coworkers from being able to sin. You prevent them from spewing onto your ear where you have the opportunity to share that with somebody else. And then we have our last part. Are you ready for this? This is powerful. Flip back over 2 Samuel Verses, uh, chapter 11, verses 12 and 13. Oh, this is a good one. You got to watch this. Look at chapter 11, verse 10. It says when you're, excuse me, uh, verse, uh, verse 12. It says, then David said to him, just stay here one more day. And tomorrow I'll send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. 
Verse 13, at David's invitation, underline at David's invitation, he ate and drank with him, and David made him drunk. Underline and highlight, and David made him drunk. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat among his master's servants. He did not go home. Remember, all David has to do at this point is he goes, man, I can't get him to go home. I can't get him to break his vow. I can't get him to just sleep with his wife. Why won't he do that? Why won't he do that? I'll tell you what I'll do. I will order him to come and eat with me. I will order him to drink my wine. And then once he's drunk, he won't remember what happened that night. So we'll send him home. Even if he doesn't sleep with her, we can just tell him that's what happened. And that's the final play of a lunatic that's over you. They, if they can't beat you, then what they have to do is get you crazy so that then you act out of character and then you become just a little bit lower than they are. And that's what happens in this passage. In this passage, David can't beat him, so he tries to get him drunk. If you're taking notes, write this down. How do you deal with the person in authority that's trying to set you up? Number one, operate with unquestionable integrity. Number two, speak memorable words that are worth repeating. And number three, keep your head when they make you crazy. Keep your head when they make you crazy. You're about to watch this this afternoon with two teams that are playing to go to the Super Bowl. Okay, two different games. What happens at the end of the game when the offense is winning with a few seconds left and they have the ball and the defense doesn't have a shot to win? What is the play that the offense runs to run out the clock? They snap the ball and they kneel. Can I just tell you as one who played football, the defense does not have a chance unless the offense makes a mistake. That's it. Can I just tell you as one who played, those last plays with the kneel down were where the most awful things were spoken about someone's mother, grandmother, girlfriend, wife, whatever, right? That's where the worst stuff was said because the goal is to get under the skin of the offensive lineman, specifically the center, so that then the exchange is messed up and the defense gets a shot at going down the field again with no time left. They have no chance unless a mistake is made. That's it. That's what's happened here. When someone's in authority over you, you've lived with integrity, you've not been goaded into speaking those awful words, they have one play left, and that's to force you into a mistake. You catch it? They got to get you drunk. Drunk on power, drunk on anger, maybe just literally drunk by taking you out and trying to get you to spend money on the company card. I mean, they got to do something to try to bump you down just a tick below them on the totem pole so they don't have to be the one that goes. Don't let that be you. If you're taking notes, last little statement today. The final play of a desperate schemer is to get you to destroy yourself. The final play of a desperate schemer is to get you to destroy yourself. It's a great little movie that illustrates this. Pinnacle of Russell Crowe's career was the movie Gladiator. You remember Gladiator? Great little movie. In the movie Gladiator, you have this battle between the king, the emperor, Commodus, and then you have Russell Crowe as the gladiator. There is no historical accuracy to that movie whatsoever, by the way. Okay? Way different story for another day. Let's focus just on the movie and we'll close. The emperor wants so badly to have control of the country Gladiator, by living in integrity, by trying to do what's right, he just takes the hit over and over again. Look at my eyes just for a second. Do you remember the scene? 
finally gets to the point where Russell Crowe is turning the crowd and the crowd's starting to cheer for him. And at the end of the gladiator matches, they wall him in with this wall of soldiers with swords pointed at them so that, again, it's to show the strength of the emperor and the weakness of the gladiator. Do you remember the scene? Russell Crowe's been doing so good that it's turned the people against the emperor. Do you remember the scene? Swords are pointed at them, and then all of a sudden, Commodus walks in, the emperor, Joaquin Phoenix, walks in, and he says horrible, unrepeatable things about his wife and about his son. And he says these terrible things about what's going to happen to him. And you watch it, Russell Crowe, and the only way that an Academy Award-winning actor or actress can do, you see it in his eyes, the pain. And do you remember what he says? The memorable words he speaks when he's trying to make him drunk off of grief. He says, the time for honoring yourself will soon be at an end, Highness. That line is perfect because he doesn't allow it to get him drunk with grief, drunk with anger, and he still maintains chain of command by calling him Highness at the end. And you know what happens? All of a sudden he turns to walk away through the swords and the soldiers step and they pull back because there are all sorts of servants at the gate that have been watching the whole stinking thing unfold. They are not blind to the unreasonable lunacy. But you have to trust that the Lord is the one guiding the ship. It begs the final question. Do you have a plan for when they make you unreasonable? Do you have a plan for when they make you unreasonable? Some of you need to figure out how to doodle in the sand. Some of you need to figure out how to lean down and to do something to occupy your mind so that it doesn't just drive you absolutely freaking insane that they are treating you this way. You do that and you watch the Lord will protect you in powerful ways. I wish I could tell you it ends well for Uriah. Instead with Uriah, We have this beautiful template for how to navigate this. And in the end, his boss is crazy. And it ends up costing him his life. When you stand before God, you won't defend someone else's lunacy. You're going to defend whether or not you did the right thing in that circumstance. Now here's the good news, best news. Through the shed blood of Jesus Christ, our sin, no matter what we do, is covered through our faith in him. We don't have to be perfect. But when we do this, it shines an eternal spotlight where God is glorified. I was reading through this. You know, there's not another single statement from Uriah in all scripture. Just this one. And it was a heck of a statement, wasn't it? Our lives can glorify God that way too. Let's bow our heads for prayer.